0: Hello my friends, it's Sarah from Weird Horizon, where we explore topics on the spooky, the esoteric, the countercultural, and the just plain weird. Thank you for joining me for another episode. In this one we are going to deepen our exploration of cyberculture and the philosophies and ideas that align the structure of the internet with the structure of the brain. Is it that the internet is not as similar to the brain as we may imagine? or the brain of the internet is simply maturing. Is this looming feeling of being on the edge of a technological disaster part of the natural process of such structures? What does it mean that the internet seems in many ways to be becoming less human, prioritising brands over people, the group over the individual? Is this all part of a natural process? and is how we view what it is to be human itself changing over time. We will be continuing with ideas from Wired for Thought by Jeffrey M. Steibel, as well as Out of Control, The New Biology of Machines, Social Systems, and the Economic World by Kevin Kelly. We are inching ever closer to the conspiracy theory that got me started on this whole rabbit hole, dead internet theory. I won't get into that in too much depth now, but we're setting the scene for this change in attitude around the internet, from a boundless sea of opportunity to a space more vacant than full, i.e. the state of the modern internet. Let's get into it. So why has the internet not woken up? So despite Stiebel's proclamation in Wired for Thought that the internet is gradually gaining the ability to think... Despite the internet mirroring and utilising similar patterns of thought and consensus than we expect in groups of humans, the internet has not popped into consciousness in the way that would be expected by 90s internet philosophers. In fact, most of the imagined limitations around size, complexity, and sheer computing power have largely been surpassed, but ironically enough, so has our knowledge of the human brain. As such, these two seem to be constantly neck and neck with us always seemingly a few years away from being able to synthesize a structure of equivalent complexity and possibility as a developed human brain. But funnily enough, the fact that the internet seems to be lagging behind somewhat in the race against the brain may lend more weight to the argument around their similarity. As widespread internet matures and more long-term data becomes available... There is a theory that the internet is undergoing a process of simplification that is the natural process of a maturing brain. Steibel took this theory one step further and even claimed that the internet will naturally collapse at some point, mirroring the way in which the brain prunes inactive pathways or synaptic links which have proven less useful. As we have discussed, both the human brain and the internet particularly uh, search and functions of the indexed web, utilize what they know via a web of semantically linked concepts. The brain and the web attribute values to certain connections, certain concepts and relationships, and based on their utility, how useful or how cerebral these connections are, there is a hierarchical nature to how we access our information. So take Google, for example. Very few people journey past the first page of Google search results, and Google search results are tailored to this fact as well. The ones at the top are generally regarded to be the most useful and relevant results for you, and these are served up quickly because your time is valuable. But this link naturally goes both ways. You are less likely to visit the 6th best result rather than the 1st best result, or the 2nd, so those at the top tend to stay at the top. A simplification, no doubt, as you miss out on all kinds of less popular results, but you're not going to be overly surprised by your results. You will be reliably generally satisfied, and this reliability is key. You may have heard the idea that the brain stops maturing past the age of 25. And sure enough, beyond a certain age, the human brain does start to change. As we age, our capacity for pattern recognition declines, but we gain better risk management and long-term planning skills. We become more resistant to change, however. I would argue we are working with a more mature internet in the 2020s versus the 90s. One less flexible, no doubt, but one that's more constant, as we just explained. It's more reliable. In adolescence, the human brain is a pattern-finding machine, so just taking in a lot of information all the time and trying to make sense of it all. You can see this in the forms of the 90s internet. It's just chucking things out at the wall, seeing what sticks, and then the patterns, the things that have stuck are the ways in which we use the internet now. So the ways we use the internet have changed, but at the same time they have matured because we've kind of made sense of this. As a result, when we age, we need this pattern recognition function less. We have already in our brains formed these neural pathways, linked these concepts. And as we grow, we are confronted less with concepts that truly challenge us we have the tools to deal with the vast majority of scenarios we are likely to come across, but as an unwitting side effect, we find ourselves more rigid in our views. So if we take this and run with the idea that the internet is becoming simplified, one note, the kind of echo chamber that it is often criticised to be, setting aside the fact that it is a human-made structure and so a reflection of ourselves and society, Maybe what we're viewing is the internet brain maturing and losing connections as it leaves its boundless growth phase. Of course, if we start counting the age of the internet from the mid-90s when the internet became the truly global beast it is today, it's hitting about that right age after all. That is, of course, if it is limited to the same approximate age as a human is. We are limited by our biology. The internet is not. But still, let's dive into an example. So Stiple gives an excellent example in Wired for Thought with a company that is going to date this quite badly, but is still very fascinating. So we are looking at a network, a social network, MySpace. And it is its structure as a network in itself that is most interesting. Networks, of course, are hugely intricate ways of organizing connections. The world as we know it is made up of a myriad of networks. And therefore, a network is the best reflection of the true complexity of our society. And it's for this reason that social networks are such a complicated and nuanced beast. A network, biological or digital, cannot grow at an unbounded pace and hope to stay at optimum stability. A network at its stable, efficient best has half the connections of a network during its growth phase. For example, when Wired for Thought was written, Myspace was starting to falter. The reason for this is a concept that we've already touched on, but at a point a network becomes so large, it is hard to find anyone with which to make connections. So Stivel explains this seemingly strange relationship as thus. The value of a network does not increase in size when the size of the network makes it impossible to derive value from it. MySpace was seeing no lack of new users but they were logging on, attempting and failing to find their friends, and then leaving. And we could argue this is what is happening to the internet now. So what was the solution for MySpace, according to Word for Thought? He says, basing this on his expertise in the field of brain science and how brains work at their efficient best, they should be weeding out the low-impact, inactive and irrelevant users just as the brain weeds out the least viable neurons through a process aptly called cellular suicide. So alarming terming aside, um, this is a process that is already, as we've explained, in full swing in terms of the internet at large. However, one of the larger criticisms of this weeding out of low impact, meaning lower connection users and agents, is that it may contribute to a criticism leveled at the internet in 2022 that it, in effect, delists regular people. A user with relatively few connections to a network of others with relatively few connections is what makes up the bulk of our society. So this process is already underway in that it tends to delist regular people in favour of inflammatory content. This is something that we've all seen. Inflammatory content gets more eyes on it, and therefore it is prioritized. Same goes for revenue makers and people that are already popular. People are being deprecated in favor of corporations. But with an increased understanding of biological systems, this seeming conservation of connectedness shows itself again and again. From out of control... Biology suggests that in addition to regulating the number of connections per node in a network, a system tends to also regulate the connectance, the strength of the coupledness. The fact that it may feel like we're growing more distant from those we are connected to online is an uncomfortable feeling, but may be, purely biologically, a natural one. So is this truly a flaw? As mentioned, this process may be essential or even healthy for the maintenance of a strong and stable network, but it leaves a bad taste in our mouth because it seems to contrast with what we view as important in and on the internet, it being a human construction designed to help humans and improve our lives. How does it make sense then that it seems to be losing more and more of its humanity as time goes on? Maybe we're thinking too literally again. After all, it is not the shape and structure of the human brain that we truly value, but what comes from it as an emergent trait, what we view as us, our personalities, our thoughts. Is it not the same for the internet? We are not surely expecting from it an accurate and fair reflection of human society, a digital extension of our society and culture. As we've spoken about, the internet has its own set of emergent traits, its own set of social traits that allow it to be studied alongside other living networks, such as hives and habitats. Out of Control explains it like this. The net is an emblem of multiples. Out of it comes swarm being, distributed being, spreading the self over the entire web so that no one part can say, I am the I. It is irredeemably social, unabashedly of many minds. It conveys the logic of both computer and of nature, which inform, convey a power beyond understanding. Key, distributed being, a way of being assembled from spread out parts, in the same way the personality emerges from no set parts in our brains. And not just personalities, but memories. Memories are like emergent events summed out of many discrete, unmemory like fragments stored in the brain. Maybe memory is stored more like how we view the internet than we previously thought, in which ideas are emergent rather than having one set space in memory. But the closer you look at the brain, the more you see that the key elements of what we view as us. Are emergent traits stemming from a complicated and elusive relationship of disparate elements? There are a few questions raised by this. One, if our brains are seemingly utilising a process of distributed computing and memory storage, albeit of course limited to just our one brain, we get back to the main question. Can anything using these methods have the capacity to be brain-like? And two, Is this process able to be replicated, able to be duplicated? Say you are able to make an exact copy of the brain, would the personality of the scanned brain come with it? The true usness of the brain, because as Kelly puts it in out of control, the thing about brains is that when you look in them, you discover that there's no one home. Our own brains are a strange emergent something, just as the net is. So the idea of a digitally created or duplicated brain brings us into the wheelhouse of transhumanism, which is a big subject containing many differing viewpoints, but I will attempt to summarize it for you. So transhumanism as a term was popularized by Julian Huxley in 1957 in an essay. A biologist, and it has to be stated a eugenicist, Transhumanism then and now shared a healthy overlap with futurology. Transhumanism posits that humans can and should use technology to extend their lifetimes, improve cognition, and surpass the limitations of the human form. So this includes and surpasses theoretical procedures such as digitizing the human brain for various reasons and various benefits, using digital consciousness and AI to participate in the evolution of our species, potentially passing off the world as inheritance to our created digital children. A human being gaining benefit from all these procedures and technologies would become something different beyond human, post-human. Many of the societal struggles we are currently facing as a species such as poverty, climate change, and human rights abuses, have the potential to be mitigated by this change. A digital human does not have the same space and resource needs as a corporeal one. However, it is not doom-mongering to say that even a fully digitized society would not be free from all the struggles listed. In fact, it is very naive to say that it would. But with transhumanism, it does not necessarily matter that we do not fully understand the human brain. It suggests that it could be enough just to duplicate it, just as if you make an exact copy of an engine made out of the same materials. You would not have to understand how it works for it to work, for it to function as an engine. All we would need to do is to recreate the brain digitally. Every synapse and neural connection And the consciousness, the us we associate with our brains, would be similarly created in the digital space. Of course, that is not a trivial thing to do, but this is the theory. So this would mean this digital brain could, in effect, go anywhere that a stream of data could go. So allowing us to leave our solar system, transcend the boundaries of space and time. The utopian transhumanist future is a future where we are not limited by our human form in any way. And the internet can clearly serve as a sort of proof of concept for this that certain emergent qualities that we previously only viewed as organic can exist in digital form and that new ones are possible who knows what the human brain en mass could be capable of if it was connected in a digital net without the need for any of the human intermediaries so through an extension of the brain gate, direct brain interfaces we spoke about, or an interface with a digital brain just breaking down even one more barrier. So obviously this all sounds quite utopian. This is pretty directly stemming from these 90s ideas of cyberpunk that we were talking about with all the pros and all the cons associated. But as argued by transhumanism, technology should be used in this way. This is not just... a uh, the potential it should be used as part of our natural process of evolution, to be active participants in our own evolution and to be part of the natural process of the brain by which it extends the body when using any tool. Our brain uses a tool as if it were an extension of our arm, for example. So this excellent example comes from the Philosophy Tube video on transhumanism, which was very recently released. And the example Abby gives is of the research on monkeys using tools. So the same parts of the brain light up where they held rake touching an item as when the monkey's hand did it directly. At the level of the brain itself, there is no real cutoff between technology, tools, and the natural border of the human body. It is a permeable membrane made to stretch around whatever is of use to us. But why does this idea of tech extending our bodies make us so uncomfortable? So let's get one quick transhumanism criticism out of the way before we look at some of the instinctual resistance we may have to it. This is not an exhaustive list, of course. Transhumanism can be used as a form of escapism that can imply the idea of linear progress and that utopia is just round the corner. And these criticisms, of course, sound very similar to those levelled against our 90s internet philosophers, like those with the buttons saying jack in and space out, they are betting on a future that may never come instead of attempting to fix the issues we have here and now. Potentially shedding the human form in the future does not change the fact that the human body is a highly politicised form right now. In fact, this is probably some of the reason that so many people are against transhumanism, even in theory. The human body isn't just a meat prison, and all bodies aren't created equally. Bodily autonomy is a struggle that is not solved by taking the body out of it. This is the argument of even the earliest of cyberpunk writings. There are degrees of freedom in this world, And who's to say if everyone existed in perfect digital replication that this would change? Who is to say that all would have access to this technology in the first place? There is a cost attached to early adoption of this technology, a risk that might unfairly affect the less affluent, or an opportunity only available to the wealthy or influential. But ignoring these massive criticisms, Why does the idea of the post-human body, a non-corporeal stream of photons, clash with something we view as essential to the human body? What does it say about our soul? In Jacob Geller's excellent video essay on head transplants and the non-existence of the soul, he talks about a number of scenarios in which an attempt is made to separate the head from the body. Take the us that is in our brain and fuse it with another body maybe because the body is broken or damaged and this is an attempt to save your life. But even if this procedure were to go swimmingly, and we have not yet managed to perform such a procedure in human history, is the perception of our own bodies fluid enough to accommodate change this drastic, even if you wanted it to? As mentioned, mentally we are able to extend our bodies in any number of non-trivial ways every day but the loss of a limb that is something that the brain fails to reconcile with for the rest of one's life in some cases what if instead of one limb it were your entire body when you look down at your body does your brain see it as your body is there a bond here that the more radical ideas of transhumanism violate we know that the mind completely stripped of any sensory input will create for itself, with a digital brain in essence be in a permanent sensory deprivation tank, again from out of control. Left on its own, without a direct link to the outside, a brainy network takes its own machinations as reality. There is something of us in the bodies we inhabit, They are not, on any level, the simple vehicles that we would need them to be to travel into a post-human world. So forget the body. Upload your brain. There does not yet exist a procedure by which you can scan or image the brain to the level of accuracy needed to reproduce it, or I should say, not one that does not destroy the brain in the process. But say this procedure were to exist. As Geller expands on his video essay, In the brief loss of consciousness before your physical brain is destroyed and the new one boots into consciousness, you are effectively dead. How could you possibly know that the you that wakes up in digital form is you? And what is left of you when you strip you from your body? As Kelly says on Robotics in Out of Control... Making robots that have to survive in real bodies, day to day, on their own, is the only way to find artificial intelligence, or real intelligence. If you don't want a mind to emerge, then unhinge it from the body. This has been the wisdom grown from a robotic industry of the decades of attempts at building machines designed to improve our lives. But decades have shown that the fast, cheap and out of control robots do better than the big brains on wheels. It's this direct feedback from the world, the almost instinctual reaction to stimuli that creates intelligence as a byproduct. Real useful intelligence, especially in groups of robots, comes with them achieving one simple task and this slowly being proved upon. Think about the example that started this all, the Pong experiment, in which a auditorium full of people through instant feedback, managed to come to a group consensus many assumed would be impossible. The kind of decision-making that would be impossible, even with a guiding agent, was achievable en masse through an emergent social strength that came about through no teaching, no coaching, just by virtue of the network that it was a part of. This is a concept that we keep coming back to. Real results come from a horde of robots of this kind feeling out solutions instinctively. The roboticists of the 80s and 90s knew that a reasoning machine, a brain before body, would paralyze itself in deducing its solution. If you want to learn more about 90s robotics, Out of Control has an entire chapter dedicated to it, and of course... This phrase, fast, cheap, and out of control, is where it gets its title from, and I highly recommend it. It is fascinating to see these ideas come up again and again of traits seemingly emerging out of chaos, circling again and again around the idea of the ghost in the machine and the idea of, is there a division between the self and the body? So one more because there is a certain enjoyment in diving into these concepts that make your skin crawl. If there were such a procedure to create a digital duplicate of one's brain, if that copy spontaneously manifested as an emergent trait, a personality, your personality, say it was fed all of your memories, all the information you possess, and therefore with its identical brain structure, its thought patterns were functionally identical, to yours. It has the potential to live forever, exist in post-human form. True, it is not subject to the same physical maturation and degradation process, but very likely, by virtue of its structure, it is at least capable of changing and maturing in ways we view as growing wiser with old age. But the potential for this collapse, this simplification, is unbounded, And you are still you. Do you take yourself out of the picture? Allow the digital you to take over for the both of you, knowing that you would experience death. There is no way to transfer your consciousness, only duplicate it via this method. One of you has to go. And on that threat from the future... Thank you for joining me on this winding journey through some of the interesting theories around the brain and technology and how they interact. We will be doing one more part for now where we finally dive into dead internet theory and the idea that a humanless internet may actually be closer to what we'd view as a superorganism than a brain and what that means for its future development. One last quote from Out of Control. Superorganism was a buzzword among biologists in the 1920s. They used it to describe the then novel idea that a collection of agents could act in concert to produce phenomena governed by the collective. Interesting. But for now... Come and interact with my perfect synaptic scan on Twitter as Weird Horizon and Instagram as Weird Horizon Podcast, where I will post little bits that I find in my research and updates on topics and, you know, updates about the process, how it's getting on. So if there's anything in particular you'd love me to do a deep dive on, head on over and I will read loads of books on it and then I will bother everyone I know with little bits about it and then I'll finally form it into a podcast that I am 80% happy with but always feel like has missed out all of the interesting bits. because that's how the human brain works. <laughs> um, but for now, bye.